This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. As I said, there are some themes in Scripture that keep repeating themselves, others that the preacher likes to repeat, and this, I think, is a little bit of both. Uh, I don't believe that, I don't feel like I'm called to teach you the nitty-gritty of the long-fought-over doctrines of the Christian faith, or to dig out the unknown mysteries of Scripture. I try to keep it simple, because that's how my simple brain works. I'd, I, I, I care more about one's daily outworking of their Christian life than their ability to articulate great knowledge. And so with that in mind, we're going to spend most of our times in the book of Galatians this morning, looking at the importance of living the gospel. Paul spends a lot of time in this epistle showing the importance of the gospel and the need for it to remain pure. And so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, he says to To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul wasn't going to let the purity be tainted by the Judaizers, so that it wouldn't be corrupted and lose any of its saving power. And this is why he's writing to the Galatians, because the Galatians were being pressured into going back under the Mosaic law. They were being told that salvation couldn't be obtained merely by God's grace through faith. But these Gentile believers were being taught that they needed to follow Jewish customs, especially circumcision. And the false teachers among them were insistent that they couldn't be saved without circumcision. But the good news, the message that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf so that in him we are made righteous, that message can't be mixed with a self-righteous means that these people were, were trying to push onto the Galatians. It can't be mixed with the old superficial way of doing things. And that is largely what the old Testament law was. It was a superficial expression of something that was better to come. It was a shadow, a foreshadowing of something that was to come. Paul understands that the importance of the gospel, because of the importance of the gospel, it must remain pure which is why he harps on it so so often. And so Galatians 2.14, he says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now he's, he's speaking here of Peter. If you remember, Peter came to them and everything was fine when it was Peter and Paul and the church. But then some came from James, from Jerusalem, and 
So once these Jewish men came, Peter started to hold himself back and he started to, well, he, he stopped eating with the Gentiles because he feared the circumcision. But Paul says there in Galatians 2.14, but when I saw their conduct, that it was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul confronts the hypocrisy here in Peter's actions. Paul wasn't just concerned by for, for Peter himself, but he was mindful that what was happening here, what their actions were doing, was undermining the truth and the purity of the gospel that he had spent his life trying to get across to this, this church. He had been, you remember, and later, later in Galatians chapter 3, he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, we are all one in Christ. But what happened? Peter comes along, some of his friends from Jerusalem come along, and all of a sudden there is a difference between Jew and Gentile. It was tainting the gospel message. His, his actions were not in line with the gospel. And the way we live out our life will reflect our understanding of the gospel message, the way we act among each other. And the truth of this gospel that Paul is proclaiming affects every area, area of our life. It determines how we treat our co-workers it will dictate how we treat our family, our spouse, and our children. Because if we scream and yell at our spouse, it demonstrates that there is a lack of understanding regarding the gospel message and what Christ has achieved and what we are called to as his followers. When we mistreat others, it reveals an issue with our understanding of the gospel. And so in every area of our life, we are demonstrating our understanding of the gospel. If we're arrogant and crude, it shows there's something wrong with our understanding because that is not what we're called to. It affects how we raise our children. You know, Do we raise them just like the world? Do we raise them with the lies that the world tells them, perhaps about a fat man in a red suit, or about uh, a few Easter's ago I saw resurrection eggs, you know, some way to mingle the traditions of the world in with Christianity. The church has tried all sorts of crazy things to draw in the world into the church, but the church is not for the world. The gospel message is for the world and church is for those who respond to the gospel message and are saved. And that's why this foundation that the, the gospel is for everything that we do as a Christian is why Paul so passionately defends its purity. Because if you mix the gospel with anything other than grace through faith, then it ceases to be good news. It's no longer good news if 
is not by God's grace and is not through faith. And that's why the devil continues to attack the gospel and he has done for the past 2,000 years, always trying to add something to it, add man's effort or subtract things away from it. And the gospel is not simply that we follow Christ and imitate his life. That would be works if that's all the gospel was. But the gospel is rather that we are to receive Christ by faith. It's that we are to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no place in the gospel for a salvation that is obtained by keeping the Mosaic law. That doesn't mean that we don't follow Christ and we don't imitate his life, but that's the flow-on effect of the gospel message. That's the flow-on effect when we respond to the gospel message. But that's not the gospel in itself. But rather, repentance from dead works and faith in Christ is the gospel call. And I think Paul puts this, actually not Paul, uh, Luke puts this very interestingly in Acts chapter 20 when he says, and he's speaking of Paul here, (coughs) you yourselves know from the first day that I set forth in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of what? Of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence of it. That's that's all the important things boiled down into the two key ingredients. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we go out and witness to people we don't just tell people, oh, read your Bible and obey what it read, what, what it says. Because that's not the gospel message. That may lead them to the gospel if they were to do that, if they were to read the Bible and obey what it read, what it says. That may lead them to the gospel. But that's not the gospel itself. The gospel call is for us to forsake sin through repentance of those dead works. And then simply to trust in Christ, to follow him, to trust in him, to obey what he says. Because it is finished. There's no more to be accomplished. There's no works, there's no human endeavor that goes into that part of the gospel message. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to Christ I cling, as the old saying goes. Now, of course, We are certainly called to good works. That is one of the primary purposes for which we have actually been saved, is to do good works. But that doesn't contribute to the getting saved. That's the flow-on effect after we are redeemed, after we are forgiven and made right with God. Then we are to go on and do good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's what we've been created in Christ Jesus for. But that's not what 
creates us in Christ Jesus. Works, or even better yet, fruit, may be the evidence of salvation, but it's not the means of salvation. And just like Paul, uh, just like Peter was guilty of compromising and confusing the issue until Paul rebuked him, we too can very easily fall into some form of law-keeping. You know, churches have long made great lists of things that Christians must do to stay in right relationship with their church, perhaps. You know, thou shalt not criticise the pastor, thou shalt not be late, or thou shalt not raise thy hands in worship, or uh, thou shalt not watch TV, you know, you can come up with any number of things that churches have made rules on. I remember one visitor, there, his, the, the place that he was going said that you, I forget now, if you could only wear denim or you couldn't wear denim. It was one or the other, but just uh, bizarre things. But if our lives are guided by the gospel, guided that the message by the message that in Christ we have already been redeemed and freed from the curse of the law and in our call to love one another, churches wouldn't need to make all these rules and laws if we were guided by love. If we were guided by love, then we wouldn't openly just criticise our pastor. We would go to him and speak to him one-on-one in love. If we had love of the brethren, then we would seek to be with them and to edify one another. And we wouldn't avoid church, perhaps. If we were guided by love, then we would help and serve each other where needed. And if we were guided by love for God, then we wouldn't dwell on things that are unholy or profane and therefore you wouldn't need laws about not watching TV or whatever but I mean does that, does that mean that you can't miss a Sunday or you can't watch TV it's not the, that's not the point the point is what is the motive behind it are you guided by love or is it being guided by selfishness or laziness or lust or whatever else it could possibly be Remember the the passage we read from Mark last week when Jesus was healing the man with the withered hand? What was the question he asked? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And in Matthew we get a more detailed account of this. It says, What man is there among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? You see, God cares about life. He cares about justice and mercy. And even these leaders, these Pharisees, they would do what they considered perhaps might be profaning the Sabbath 
to do good to their animal, and yet they're criticizing Jesus because he's making a whole man well. He's, he's, he's getting at their hypocrisy. And so often we want to stick to the, the, the rules and not obey them, even if love says it's the right thing to do. Because often our rules are man-made and they just give us a sense of satisfaction to be able to tick the box. Oh, done that, done that, done that. But it removes the heart of love and of mercy and justice. And that's why I think love fulfills the law, why the scripture says that love fulfills the law, because that's really what it's about. It's about love. The rules were kind of introduced because humans can be a bit thick in the head. Rules and regulations are usually added when love is missing. In fact, the scripture says that the law came because of transgression. Transgression only happens when there's no love. But love is fulfillment of the law. And I'll give you this illustration. If I say to my, my kids at 7 o'clock, kids, go off to bed. So 7 o'clock comes around and they go off to bed. They obey me the first time. But after a few nights, they start to push the boundaries. And they go off to their bedrooms and then they start to play. Well, they've kind of obeyed the rule, haven't they? They've gone to the bedroom and then they've started to play. And so then the next time, I have to refine the rules. And I say, at 7 o'clock, go to your beds and get under the covers. And so they go into bed, they get under the covers, and then they start talking to one another and they start throwing darts across their beds and you know, they start pushing the boundaries. And so then I have to refine the rules a little bit more. Girls, get into your bed. No talking. No giggling. No squeaking. No gymnastics under your blankets. Just lie there. But then they try and find a little bit of wriggle room within those rules. So eventually the rules evolve into girls. Lay in your bed. And don't move, jump, moan, groan, sing, giggle, talk, squeak, or wriggle. And don't look at each other. And stop pulling faces. So what starts out as a simple command, which meant it's time to go to bed, time to go to sleep, evolves or devolves into a long list of rules. But if love was the motivating factor, if love was the guide then you wouldn't need all that refinement of rules because love would do the right thing. If love and obedience was their guide and response, then they wouldn't need a list of rules. Love would be sufficient. I'm not saying that rules are bad. They often are a very helpful guide to us, especially in our weakness. Rules can be a good splint or a good cast to get us out of bad habits, perhaps. And they can be great for training kids in the way that they should go. But ultimately, we want self-control and love to take over and suffice. Because if we only do good because we're told to, then that's, you know, we've missed the point. Defeats the purpose. If we're, if we're only good because mum and dad tells me I have to be good, or 
you know, if, if we as Christians only do good because, well, we've ticked all the boxes that we've been given, it defeats the purpose. Like, that, that's, that's completely missing the point. We are to love. That's what God, God has called us to. And I firmly believe that if we were to be able to look with an eternal perspective at our lives, we would be horrified and ashamed. We would be ashamed at the way we speak to others. We would be ashamed at where we spend our time. We would be ashamed at the many times that we withhold the gospel to people because of the fear of man. We would be horrified at the sin that lurks within our own hearts. And I don't say this to condemn us. I say it to awaken us, to stir us up, because I desire that we can all say with Paul, as he says in Philippians Chapter 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything but loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Thankfully, if we open our Bibles and we read it with an open and honest heart with a desire to know our Saviour and an honest desire to be holy, to be set apart from the world and to be like Him, then He will mould us and shape us and transform us to be like Him. But so often we fall back into the here and now and we get too caught up in the daily routines of life, of entertainment and amusements and forget about the importance of the heavenly work that we've been given and called to. This is the reason why a few weeks back I deleted YouTube from my phone because I could see how destructive it was to my time and to my mind. Because just like TV, once you start watching it, it's very easy for it to just go on for hours, hours, and lure you in. So for me, I got rid of it from the one device that follows me everywhere I go, because it becomes a a stumbling block or a temptation just to pull it out and waste some time watching it. Interesting videos, very interesting videos. 
but are they helpful? Do they actually contribute to making the most of our time and redeeming the time? Usually not. For others, this might include things like Facebook or Twitter or other things. And it's not that I have a no YouTube rule. I haven't made a rule that says no YouTube. I've just tried to remove the stumbling block. Tried to have a bit of common sense about what we have at our fingertips all the time to waste time. And it's been extremely profitable. On an iPhone, you can see how much screen time you've had. And I think for most people, if you get rid of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, your time, your screen time will probably at least half, if not do far more than that, because that's where we spend and waste our time. The things that we give our time to must be able to pass the Philippians 4 test. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians 4, verse 8. Maybe print that out and stick it on the wall in the toilet to (coughs) ponder about other things that we spend our time passing that test. (coughs) Because I'm convinced that what Paul spent his time on passed that test. And the apostles and many of the great men of days gone by, their lives are guided by that principle. But in this day and age where we've got technology everywhere, got it in every room of the house, we walk around it with a pocket, you multiple of them, so many that you can't keep track of them all, it becomes very distracting. And it's very easy to get lured into the here and now of the world. The gospel is a very high calling and it doesn't leave anyone the same. I don't think you can say that you've believed and obeyed the gospel and yet 10 years down the track, you're exactly the same. You're no more like Jesus. You're no more sanctified after 10 years. If you've obeyed the gospel, if you follow the gospel. Because the gospel will change lives. Because the Holy Spirit will bear fruit in and through our lives. Sadly, there's been a resurgence of Christians that are going back to the Mosaic law and putting themselves under it. And Paul quite clearly deals with this in the book of Galatians. It doesn't seem to have sunk it in for some. And I know I've spoken about this in years gone by. But there seems to be a real push for Christians to forsake the simplicity that is in Christ. And I don't rail on the Mosaic law because I hate it or because it has no purpose. The Mosaic law is good if it is used for the purpose for which it was given. The law had a purpose. 
And that was to teach us something. It was to teach us about sin. It was to teach us about a saviour. It was to demonstrate that we could not do it on, on our own. It was to magnify transgression. The law was given because of transgression. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral, men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law was to convict of sin, but was never made or designed to save from sin. If the law could have given life, then righteousness would have come by the law. And that's what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise of faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Wouldn't you love love it if righteousness was by the law? Wouldn't that be easy? No. (laughs) It would be horrible because there's no way that we could keep it. And that was the point. We can't keep it perfectly. The Pharisees thought that they had it down pat. But that was just to show how far they actually were from righteousness. The law was temporary. When someone puts their trust in Jesus, the Mosaic law has fulfilled its purpose. That's what Paul is teaching in Galatians 3. The law was given after God's promise to Abraham. God didn't give the promise and then change his mind. The law was not the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. The purpose of the law was as a schoolmaster or a guardian to lead people to Messiah. But since Christ has come, the guardian is no longer required. Galatians 3.23 But before, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor or schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. Some may argue that, well, if we're not under the law, then we're lawless and can do whatever we like. But that's not true. We're under the law of Christ now. We're, we're under the law of the spirit of life. The Mosaic law was given, the, the Mosaic law has given way to the law of Messiah. We are under the law of love and we are told to walk by the Spirit. 
Let me read from Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Speaking of the Mosaic law. Those who are in Christ and are living by his spirit and not subject to the old law. They are those who heed his word, obey his commands, follow his ways. However, those who are not being led by the spirit or not walking by the spirit, they're being led by their flesh and they don't produce spiritual fruit but rather they produce fleshly works. Galatians 5, chapter 19. I don't know if you're familiar with this verse, but anyone who street, preaches, street preaches knows Galatians 5, 19, off by heart. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, These works of the flesh, they're obvious. They're easy to spot. Most of them are easy to spot. And those who live a lifestyle of these things will not inherit the kingdom of of God. How is it that Paul can be so judgmental? Simple. He knows how the Spirit of God works and the fruit that is produced when the Spirit indwells someone. And the Spirit's Fruit is not found on that list. That's the the list of the flesh. And it sums up what the natural flesh of man produces. (coughs) But Christian character or spiritual fruit comes from within by the power and working of the Spirit. He transforms us From the inside out. Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore brothers. By the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed. By the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern. What is the will of God. What is good and acceptable 
and perfect? How is it that we renew our minds? Do we fold our legs and fold our arms and hum a monotone noise and empty our minds? Or is it by filling our minds with the Word of God? Filling our minds with things that are just and holy and pure and good and righteous. In the Psalms, Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. I, re- I rejoice at thy word as one that finds great spoil. Is that something we can say? That we cherish the word more than great spoil? I do wonder if if every person who attended a church was given the option of the word of God or the world's riches, how many would be left with the word of God? Do we cherish that more than the world's goods and what the world can provide? And if you've been following any of the Christian news in the last few weeks, there's been a few very high-profile people who have departed from the word and gone after the world, sadly. But in contrast to the works of the flesh, we have the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, we see that, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I love the subtle distinction of the titles of these lists. We have the works of the flesh and we have the fruit of the Spirit. The works is what we do and we manufacture out of our own Selves, but the fruit is something that God produces within us through His Spirit. Love was on the first of that list. I think love really is the essence of the whole list. Everything on there comes out of love. I don't think it's a mistake that He put it at the top there. He just finished saying that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love your neighbour as yourself. And he caps off that list by saying, against such things there is no law. Because you can't legislate love. If you force someone to do this or that, there's no love in that. If we made church rules forcing you to look after each other, it removes any love and just becomes a process. No law is required when love is our guide. And we're not talking about the 60s, hippie, free kind of love. You know, this is biblical love, agape love, sacrificial love. 
This doesn't mean that that new Christians will immediately show forth all this fruit and never fall into sin. Obviously not. It is a process of sanctification. There are usually big changes at the start when the open and obvious sins are crucified. And then there's the gradual process of sanctification where God works in our minds to deal with the selfishness and the bitterness and the anger, resentment and other things in our life that manifests itself, sometimes randomly, sometimes sporadically in situations. And Paul adds afterwards in chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, Christians are not perfect, but we are being perfected. And we should therefore show compassion to others who are caught in sin. If we see a brother or sister caught in a sin, then, as it says, in a spirit of gentleness, we should help them because we love. We love them. We have to be careful that we don't also get entangled in that sin, whatever it may be. But so often, I think if we see someone in sin, we kind of run the other way because we want to avoid that circumstance. We want to get away from it as much as possible, but we have responsibility to help them, to educate, to edify. And if we're guided by love, then we won't just turn the other way. We will seek to rescue them with gentleness. In chapter 5, Paul recaps what he just said. He says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited or provoking one another or envying one another. Or in my words, if you call yourself a Christian, read and obey God's Word and live a Spirit-filled life. Don't have a big head about yourself, stirring up trouble and being discontented. So many arguments and divisions are the result of our own big egos. We are often so puffed up that we must stick up for our right to be seen. But what does love say? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Love. Lastly, I want to touch on the issue of liberty. Liberty does not equal licentiousness or lust or laziness. 
not when guided by love. People have long argued that grace and liberty is dangerous. They say that we must have rules to control people and keep them from sinning. Paul argues that even with the law, people still sin. Because the law doesn't produce righteousness. However, true grace, rightly understood, is actually the best teacher. And Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Notice that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. Consider a man who was frivolous with his money. He goes to Las Vegas, he goes to the casino, and he's playing some games. And by the end of the night, he's lost $10,000. He's like, oh. So he's really upset that he's lost all this money, but he goes back to try and win it, to try and win it back, to try and recoup his costs. And then by the end of the second night, he's lost everything. He's lost $100,000. He's put everything on the, on the games, on the machines, and he's about to lose everything, about to lose his family, his home, the whole lot. And then a friend steps in, And his friend sells all his goods to repay for that man's debt that he has. And he, so the man now is debt free. If there was a law saying that you shouldn't gamble, do you think that would have stopped the man from gambling? Unlikely. Unlikely. But knowing that his friend has given everything to pay his debt, is he likely to rush back to the casino again? He's not. If he grasps the gravity of the situation, if he truly understands the grace that was given in that circumstance, there's no way he'll rush back. And that's exactly what the scripture is saying, that the grace of God trains us to deny ungodliness, to put it away, if we grasp what it is that Christ accomplished on the cross. Grace is a powerful guide. In chapter 5, verse 13, we read, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. In Romans 5.20 adds this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Someone who thinks that grace means that we can engage in fleshly living does not understand anything about the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. A gospel life is a changed life. And when we kneel before God each night or each morning, we should consider our actions from the day gone by. We should examine them in the light of God's word. And then before God, we can ask for forgiveness. We can ask for the grace to change. We can repent where we've erred. And I think 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is a great way to examine ourselves, examine our motives for the day. Because I don't know about you, but I know that the scripture is true when it says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. I know how deceitful my heart can be. Oh, no, I did it for this reason. I did it for that reason. No, it's it's because, you know, and you're always trying to justify why you did something. But I think 1 Corinthians 13 really digs in very deep. And what is love? What are the motivations behind love? Because sometimes we might, for instance, reveal someone's sin. Oh, I did it out of love so that they might repent or something. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't just reveal iniquities. It actually it, it covers it in a sense, in protection. And that's the same when the instruction comes uh, when there's issues in the church. You don't just, oh, uh, Sean, everyone, I've got an announcement to make. Last week I saw Sean doing this, that, and the other thing. That's not what love does. Love love goes and does it privately because it covers, it wants to um, protect the person so that things can be done properly because otherwise it just becomes slander. Or it could be just misunderstanding on our own hearts, our own parts. Uh, and so you know, we, we need to examine the motives behind why it is that we do things, why we say things to people, why we react in certain ways when put under pressure. And though that may make us feel, you know, maybe a little bit depressed at night time as we can ponder it, if we don't, if we ignore it, then we've got no hope of being sanctified. If we're not willing to stop and consider our own actions 
and let the Word of God do its work. Let the Word of God transform and renew our minds so that we would act in accordance to His Word. Love is a high calling, but it's worth it. Let's give thanks. Father, I'm so grateful that your grace is a wonderful teacher. Lord, I pray that you would help us to comprehend the depth of your grace, comprehend what was accomplished when our sin was taken, when Christ became our propitiation. Lord, such a phenomenal transaction that occurred when you removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. Lord, how can we delight in sin any longer, knowing the price that you paid, knowing the grace that you provide. Lord, may we continue to be taught by your grace, instructed by your word, that the lives that we live would be to your glory. Lord, that we don't get distracted by the fluff of this world. Lord, all the, the dramas and sensualities produced by this world. Father, may we have the mindset that we are but pilgrims on a journey to another land. Father, we thank you for that hope that we have in Christ. And we long for his return. Father, bless our week. Do a work in our hearts, Lord, that we would honour you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.